a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm joined today here with a special guest, Naveed Aziz of the Islamic Information Society of Calgary, who has agreed to join me to have some interesting conversations about national security, bias, and Islamophobia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Corin. So, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is you've been described as a bridge builder between the Islamic community in Canada, as well as someone who speaks to larger audiences. And I was just wondering if you could introduce yourself to the audience, what you do uh, at the Islamic Information Society of Calgary, and what you do across Canada. Perfect. So I guess let's start off with my own history itself. I was born and raised in Montreal, and I spent the vast majority of my life there. Towards my teenage years, I found my faith and I traveled to Saudi Arabia to get my religious education in Arabic and in Islamic law. I came back and I wanted to get involved in the Muslim community. And the very first job opportunity that I got was in uh, Calgary. I arrived into Calgary in 2012. And shortly thereafter, we had individuals that left from the organization that I was in to join extremist groups overseas. And then there was another individual that left a year later or so, and he actually became one of the spokespeople for ISIS. And that just became a disaster. So I had to respond very quickly on multiple levels in terms of navigating inter-community politics, external community politics, law enforcement and government, and figure out what radicalization actually meant and who it was targeting and what it was all about. So I would say it took a good three or four years of, of rigorous reading and interacting with people to, to learn as much as I could. But then I also realized that there's another front that needed to be fought which was the misconceptions that people have about the Muslim community. So I positioned myself, and I still continue to try, try to position myself, in terms of navigating those misconceptions that people have, whether it be about the Muslim community, whether it be about Canadian society, whether it be uh, about law enforcement or government or academics, and just try to bring all of those worlds together, particularly within the realm of national security uh, and in the CVE world, because all of those worlds are intertwined but unfortunately, there's not enough dialogue and communication taking place. So people continue to carry those misconceptions. So now I'm also consulting with the Organization for the Prevention of Violence, dealing with uh, incarcerated members or individuals that have recently been released with terrorism charges, as well as uh, families that have individuals that have taken you know, the pathway of, of radicalization and extremism to violence. So that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. It sounds like you have your hands full. It's quite a lot. So, you know, you've had to face basically the national security community at maybe the sharper end of the stick, as they sometimes call it. You've had to face a community that is scared and as well as as confused and not understanding both, you know, within perhaps your own faith who, who, who don't understand that, but also the larger Canadian community. And as well as, you know, people like myself, talking heads, academics who try to make sense of these things and being out there. So it's it's a lot to navigate. And I imagine it's it's still a lot today. Of course, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, the concept of of bringing people together uh, and taking away biases and misconceptions is something that's going to continue till the end of time. We as individuals are are almost ingrained and indoctrinated with you know, building shortcuts in their mind to understand who people are. And often when those shortcuts are based upon what we see on the news or through, you know, Facebook or social media, it becomes very, very problematic because those aren't very verified sources usually. And then we don't have the courage within of ourselves often to build those relationships and navigate those relationships for ourselves. So whatever we, you know, see on, on news or see on TV uh, are the biases that we allow to, uh, to build in our mind. 
So I'm glad you brought up bias because that's something I do want to focus on. And it's something we have been focusing on, I think a little bit more in the podcast recently. There was an excellent podcast that Jess Davis conducted on a survey of bias in the community where we looked at the issue of transparency to the transparency report. But I want to look at it on maybe a little bit more of a personal level and, you know, I'm sure our audience may be aware or some might be aware. There was a controversy that I was a part of back in September on Twitter where I tweeted a picture of a cake of a drone strike. And I was trying to tell a story about myself and uh, it suddenly got a lot of attention when some journalists saw it and, and, you know, were repulsed by it. And I didn't understand why. I mean, I thought this was a cake about me. It was a silly story. But what I came to learn was that there were a number of people who saw this cake that, and they saw it as a celebration of the death of Muslims. Mm-hmm. And that, it, it was a surprise to me, but it shouldn't have been. And when I spoke to people about it, and I've been lucky that I've been able to do outreach about it, I came to realize that what people saw in that cake was a national security community that just didn't care about their lives, who didn't understand that these this, these are communities that have been profiled for two decades now, if, if not before, and that the national security community often seems indifferent, that when they complain, they're told, oh, this is just policy. If they complain, they're basically told, well, you know, unless you have something to hide, you shouldn't worry about it. You should just accept this. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for me. I mean, of course, I knew that these communities had been profiled, but the extent to which they have felt this bias against them was an eye-opener. And it it shouldn't have been, honestly. To my regret, this was, this whole incident has been something of an eye-opener. And, you know, we spoke about this privately, and I spoke to others who will remain nameless because I, I appreciate their confidence. And I wanted to explore this issue of bias and, and what you've been dealing with, because, you know, it, it is, I really, truly, honestly regret having sent out those tweets, having made the cake, having defended the tweets. And I, I recognize in myself that bias and, and that I probably should have done earlier. So I guess when the national security community is, is learning about various types of extremism, some of the complaints you often hear are those around language. You know, we hear, I'm going to use quote unquote Islamic extremism, which, you know, it's, it's, some people use Islamist and even that for some people is, is very difficult. We hear language even more starkly. We hear things like good guys and bad guys and, and things like this. And there's certain concerns about the counter-violence extremism or CVE programs as something you've uh, already touched on in your in your program. So I was wondering, I mean, obviously you speak from yourself, but you come from a very unique perspective, having been kind of brought into the situation in 2012, where you're kind of in the middle of things and trying to sort things out while a lot of fingers might be pointed at you. Mm-hmm. And can you maybe explain your understanding of, of this bias in the community and maybe later on, we can talk about where we think that's going. Of course, without a shadow of a doubt. So I, I think let's talk about personal experience first. When I had those group of individuals that left from my mosque, I was only in the mosque for about a month or so before they actually left overseas. And one of the first things that happened, oh, the imam must have radicalized them without taking into consideration that I had only been there for a month. I barely knew their names and I didn't even know who they were. So how could I have been the individual that radicalized them? But there was this assumption and presumption 
that Islam was the driving cause of them becoming radicalized and therefore the religious leader must have radicalized them. The good thing that I did during that time and prior to that uh, was I realized that accusations are always going to be made against individuals and the best way to protect yourself is to document everything that you do. So all of our lectures, all of our events were, I would say the vast majority of them are video uh, recorded and the audio is obviously there as well, or at the very least we did audio record them. So when anyone says, you know, did you radicalize these individuals? I'm like, here's all the material we have. You know, at that time, we didn't have a, a terabyte drives, but it was something like a hundred gigabyte drive. And I'm like, here's, you know, four years of, of material that I've recorded since I've graduated. Please feel free to listen to it and watch it. And if you have any concerns, let's come back and talk about it. Till this day, I never received my drive back. So either they went through it and they didn't find anything or just, just too much material to, to go through. So I experienced that bias firsthand. But now let's take it at a more macro level. Something like 9-11 happens and it was people that attribute themselves to Islam that did this act. And then all of a sudden the whole Muslim community, you know, at that point, 1.1, 1.2 billion Muslims across the globe need to apologize for an act that 20 people or so did. Like, how is that fair? In what other sphere is something like that actually allowed? We come up with new measures and counterterrorism policies that come into play that really marginalize and harm the Muslim community. We're talking about prosecutions that are taking place in secret, where they are not allowed access to what their charges against them are. The defense doesn't even know what to do because everything is so new. And then people are put away for multiple life sentences, multiple, multiple life sentences. And this was, you know, generally what was happening in the United States. 7-7 happens in England and, you know, England takes up on, on that as well. And then slowly but surely, the otherization of, of Muslims was solidified. I would say post 9-11, it started. 7-7, it starts to become solidified. And all of a sudden, the Muslims are the others, you know. In the, in the 70s and the 80s, there was the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. And then in the uh, post 9-11 world, there was the Muslims are coming. But little do people, you know, go through their history. If you look at Canada itself, the first Muslim migrants that came from Lebanon are documented in the 1870s, right? The first mosque is built in the 1930s. Yet the first terrorism charges that are laid in Canada are in 2006. Had the problem been within Islam, where were these terrorism charges prior to 2006, right? So the problem isn't with the Muslim community itself. We need to do a better job in educating ourselves and looking at the underlying causes that caused this. And we need to see, you know, what happened in a post 9-11 world or in the pre-9-11 world just before it that caused some of the Middle Eastern countries to respond to this. What was the political layout on the ground that allowed for groups like Daesh, and I'm using Daesh as opposed to ISIS, so that people can understand that even the term Islamic state is a very, very offensive term because Islam is free from the actions of what these individuals are doing. And in no other criminal realm do we mention a person's religion first, other than when it's an extremist act that takes place who happens to be Muslim. We look at the right-wing attacks. There are so many individuals that are tattooed with crosses and, and Bible verses, but we don't mention their Christianity. And I believe, and this is going to be very, very controversial, but this is just like a, a new form of uh, imperialism. This is just a new form of colonization that we have otherized a, a group of people and made them the others and we need to civilize them because they are barbarians. And I know that's a, a lot to take in and that is a rant, but this is the lived experience of so many Muslims. And this continues till this day when, when Muslims are treated like others, even though 
they've gone above and beyond in terms of proving themselves as contributing citizens in whichever country they're in. Yes, there are always a few bad apples, but human beings have a few bad apples. These ones just happen to be Muslim. And then their person, the community gets persecuted for those bad apples. There is a lot to unpack there, but I mean, look, I mean, part of this issue of, you know, exploring bias and things like this, one of the things I'm starting to recognize is the extent to which when communities speak up, they're, they're speaking about collective grief, right? Like they're, expect, they're, they're speaking about experiences that they've gone through. And, you know, so when they say these things and they speak with passion and things like this, it's, it's because there is that, you know, two decades now of, of these counterterrorism policies that have clearly had an impact. In, and in fairness, we have never really had a political reconciling of these different experiences that have happened. And it's something that I want to explore. I mean, I actually want to explore something that you said right at the beginning, which was in 2012, you know, a number of individuals go to Syria from Calgary. And the first thing you, you feel that you have to do is hand over a bunch of tapes of yourself. Right. That you're kind of doing surveillance on yourself for having to prove that, you know, no, I'm not radicalizing people. These are my sermons and things like this. Is this right. something that you feel that you have to do? And do you still feel that you have to do it today? So, you know, we were meant to have the presumption of innocence, but in those situations, it's a presumption of guilt and you're trying to prove a negative, right? You're trying to prove that I'm not a radical. You're trying to prove that I'm not an extremist. You're trying to prove that I didn't radicalize these individuals. And I think that process was such a, a difficult process to go through at the beginning, but I'm so grateful for it right now because I wouldn't say it's emboldened me, but it's given me the strength to, to open up and talk about what I have to talk about. So prior to this incident, anyone that asks me a question about jihad or sharia or you know anything that be, can be misconstrued or khilafah, I would usually shy away and I'd be like, okay, here's an article that you can read. Here's some, a reference that you can go back to and research it on your own. Because prior to that time, I always felt that if I spoke about it, you know what, I'm going to be under surveillance. I'm the one that's going to be, you know, potentially a, a target of, a, of an investigation. So that hesitance was always there. But after you've gone through so many interviews, after you get to know the people that are doing your interviews, and you build these relationships with law enforcement and government, and they get to know who you truly are, it actually instills a, a, a sense of confidence that these people know who I am. And even if someone reports me and takes something I say out of context, at least I know that these people will do the due diligence and reach out to me because now that we have this personal relationship. So that confidence was instilled in me. And I say now when anyone brings up an issue, you know, I'm like, okay, let's discuss it. Let's talk about it. What do you understand about it? And let me tell you what mainstream Islam actually has to say about these topics. So that was like the, the silver lining. And then again, there's, there's something really interesting that you're saying there, which is that in any kind of city, you're going to have intelligence officers and police officers who obviously you're going to get to know and to work with. But, you know, that trust was based on a personal relationship that was built over time. It's not institutional. Of course, right? 100%. People, yeah. So it seems, you know, so the question is like th these officers, these individuals that you're dealing with, they're coming to you at first with an understanding of what maybe you know, the Islamic faith is, or how radicalization is working, or, you know, what it means to deeply embrace faith. What were some of these misconceptions that you had to deal with? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. We probably have about 10 podcasts uh, on that itself. But again, the driving force being that Islam is inherently the problem, that there's a version of Islam that is inherently violent, and that is the driving force behind the violent extremism of these individuals. 
And again, it's like, okay, let's just go back to the facts. What are we basing this upon? You can't be basing this upon watching 24, you know, or, or watching Homeland. You know, that's not how the way these investigations are supposed to run. But you need to look at, at, at the driving factors. And again, let's just talk about facts. You want to talk about the Muslim community. And I drive them through the whole history of Muslims in Canada and Muslims in the world and how, you know, you, you, you can't start with the presumption of guilt. It has to begin, begin with the presumption of, of innocence. And get, just get to know the, the, the community themselves. I and mean, one of the things time and time uh, again has been that the perception of individuals changes once they've actually met a Muslim face-to-face. But you'll notice that the vast majority of people just don't take the time to do that. You know, you'll see that Muslims are regular human beings, contributing members of society, and they've actually done quite well for themselves. So this force of Islam being inherently violent and the driving force in the radicalization process, I think till this day is still one of the challenges where, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this indirectly into the language that we use, but when we use Islamic extremism or Islamist or jihadism, I understand what they're trying to say, that these are individuals that, conv- that can be prosecuted and convicted of criminality that used religion as their justification. But they don't understand is how offensive this is to the Muslim community, because you're still tying it back to their faith. And I, again, emphasize that there's no other form of criminality where you will mention a person's faith first before you mention their criminality. And that criminal behavior is what needs to be highlighted. That criminal behavior is what needs to be emphasized on and not the fact that it was their religion. You know, I'm hoping that one day I have the ability to, uh, to publish this paper, but I want to talk about at what phase does religion actually come into the radicalization process for Muslims that actually do become radicalized. And you'll notice that from the get-go, there was multiple articles that were published that you know, the people that are joining to travel, to join groups like Daesh, they're buying like the Quran for dummies and Islam for dummies, just to show that they actually had no knowledge of Islam to begin with. So at what phase does it actually come through? And my thesis uh, for it is that it comes through at a later phase when they need justification to come into their immoral acts. So they will take individual incidents that are done in isolation that can be easily misconstrued and target it towards individuals that do not have a deep understanding of their faith and have little or no critical analysis skills, and then say, you know what, your faith actually does allow you to commit these immoral acts and does justify them because the ends justifies the means, right? So that, that's something I'm hoping to, to publish in the future. But that, that's just, you know, some, some of the problems that I face till this day is that when people are like, oh, you're one of the good guys. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. The whole Muslim community is good but we have a few rotten apples just like the rest of humanity and civilization. So that sort of language is very, very harmful uh, to the Muslim community. It's inter- I'm actually really fascinated by this. I hope you publish that paper in the sense that, you know, it's about, you know, individuals who are interested in violence who find frameworks for exactly. their worldview. You know, they find a worldview, they find a framework in which to understand their actions. And I, I actually think there's a lot of merit to it. So I think I would welcome reading that paper. And, and just as a reminder to our audience, you're someone who does work with individuals who you know, may have gone down a certain path. So you're, 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 not, speaking from, you're not speaking from the gut. This is, this is not at all. what exactly. you're doing every, every day. These are, these, these are lived experiences of people that I've spoken to and, and, and talked to about. So yeah, without, without a doubt, for sure. So 2012 was a while ago, but obviously this is an issue that was pretty much at the forefront of national security and arguably still is, is today in, in some ways, regardless of, we can, regardless of the merits of whether that's a good idea or not. I guess my question to you is, do you feel the community, the national security community 
is starting to acknowledge these issues or do you think we still have a long way to go? And I'm going to, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming we have a long way to go, but do you think we've at least started down that journey? Again, there, there's so much to address in that question, but I, I think let's start off on a more macro level. How much do we actually understand about violent extremism? Do we really understand what drives some people to violence and what keeps some people just in the phase of, you know, having beliefs and ideas? We haven't even solved that issue yet. So once we get into a, a more ideological force, a, a religious force, a political force, there's so much that there needs to be entwined. So now are we making progress? I think without a shadow of a doubt, we are making progress because that's what human civilization has done from the beginning of, of time. We make progress. Is it fast enough? Not at all. What is an example of this? I mean, let's just look at how long it took for research to be done on right-wing extremism. Like what needed to be done in order for academics to say, you know what, hey, let me actually do more research to it. Let's look at how much funding is given to quote unquote Islamist, you know, extremism versus right-wing extremism. Let's look at the policies that are in place in comparison and contrast of these two. Let's look at how the, the language that we use where one is national security and the other one is, you know, public safety or something like that when we talk about right-wing extremism. So I think there's definitely a, a long way still to go, right? If you look at the, the, the most serious attack, terrorist attack in, on, in Canadian soil, it was done by a right-wing extremist, right? And we, we still have a, a long way to go for sure. I mean, in the last uh, couple of years, I mean, the, the most deadly attacks have been done by individuals who subscribed either to anti-government or anti-immigrant or Islamophobic uh, or misogynistic views. 100%, 100%. And I think you're right. And I think the other, I mean, and to, to back up your point, I mean, our listeners will be familiar with uh, the fact that pretty much all of the terrorism charges in this country, I think, except one or two have been against Muslims, but have, you know, similar acts have not basically right. been, been charged. So, I mean, these are, I think these are, are very legitimate grievances and, and things that are actually very hard to explain. There, yes, I can explain the policy. Yes, I can explain, okay, well, this is the law. This is the way the law works. And this is why we, some groups are identified and some groups aren't and, and things like this. But I feel that like when you explain this or when you explain national security policies that, you know, these explanations are often devoid of the lived experiences of people who are of course, living of course. them, right? So, right. And, 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 and that's something I think I, I certainly with, this, with everything that's happened the last couple of months, I whether Black Lives Matter, my controversy, or even just the conversations I've had, when you hear about people's lived experiences, just transparency and, and explaining policy is, is not enough in, in doing so. So I guess I would ask you, so if I was the Minister of Public Safety, heaven forbid, what, 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 and I said to you, Nevada disease, you know, you are a bridge builder, you know, I, where do we need to start? What would be step one? in terms of trying to improve, how do we build these bridges? It's you not know, an I, easy I, question. I, I, I haven't yeah. thought about it at, at a macro level, but I would say everything begins with, with literacy, right? It's just educating ourselves and, you know, figuring out our policies, alienating any members of our society and, and our communities. And then start with that and making sure that any past mistakes that have been made, whether towards indigenous people or towards minorities, let's rectify those, let's hear what they have to say and then moving forward, making sure that they're at the table guiding us and advising us, okay, how do we no longer stigmatize these communities? I understand it is a very long-term process. I understand that a lot of hard work needs to be done to reconcile, but it's something that needs to be done if we want to be better people, if we want to be good people. 
So literacy at the forefront, talking to people is next, and then making sure that there's accountability in terms of everything that takes place. And I think, you know, I'm really glad that national security is now getting stricter in terms of the, the oversight that's going to be taking place uh, over them. But again, like we've waited 20 years almost for this to take place. Like, why is it taking so long? And again, you know, everyone has a lot of grievances. And I, I, I still don't understand, you know, the Canada centers or even Canada in general, rather, let's just speak about that. What is their policy on CVE? Like, there's no clear direct policy on CVE and the direction that we're taking. It's given power to, to provinces and funding to provinces that, okay, start up these projects and, and, and these initiatives, but there's no guiding policy as far as I understand. So again, there's a, a lot of work that needs to be done, but education, talking to people and oversight, I, I would say are the three biggest things that I would start off as a mandate and re, you know, adding reconciling with as the second step as well. And if I could ask, like perhaps even on a more personal level, how would you advise allies? How would you advise people who, you know, want to support your work in bridge building and in the era of Black Lives Matter and trying to speak up for Black, Indigenous, persons of color or in, in including people pe- and including persons of faith? How do we help, you know, bring about a more just security? I, I think it's about empowering voices that are trying to help the cause. So when we're trying to build bridges sometimes we ourselves are not the best people to speak about those issues and finding people that have lived those experiences and empowering them and giving them the tools that they need to share their concerns and, and you know, express the, themselves. That's probably one of the best things that can be done. Number two is coming in with a, a form of humility. It is impossible to know everything and the gaps that I have, I can allow other people to educate me on. Being educated by other people should not be something that is looked down upon, but rather when someone loves you and cares for you, that's when they take the time to educate you. So it is something that we should empower as well that allow others to, to educate us on the things that we don't know and you know, question the biases that we have and help us reconstruct some of the narratives that are already predominant and out there. So that's what I, I would suggest is that always be open to dialogue and to discussion. I think that's very, very important. And also empowering the voices from marginalized communities to, to express themselves. I mean, I don't think often we realize the damage of our policies where people are, are just so discouraged and, and distraught that they don't have it in themselves to fight the battles anymore because they're like, what's the point? I can't make a difference. You know, why, why even bother? But we have to give people hope that your voice is important and you know, I will provide the audience that needs to listen to you. And that's you know, some of the things that I would mention uh, in terms of allyship. So, you know, like I, I've told you, I want to be a better ally, but I'm also aware that I caused harm to the community. And I was wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? Of course. First of all, I, I commend you for, for taking the opportunity to, to apologize and, 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 you know, trying to reconcile. You know, as a, an academic, your students look up to you. You have uh, community members that look up to you. And when you do something like, like you did, Obviously, it, it hurts a lot of people. So the fact that you apologize to them, uh, I would like to commend you for that and, and thank you for, for taking that step. With that being said, you know, I, I'm sure some of the community members, particularly from the Muslim community, would love to hear, you know, what are some of the things that you've done to reconcile? And also, what are some of the lessons that you've learned? 
Well, thanks for asking. It's not often I'm on the receiving end of questions on the podcast. So thanks for asking that actually. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a little concerned about naming individuals or, or groups that I've spoken with. Obviously, the I one of the first people I reached out to is the National Council of Canadian Muslims. So Mustafa Farouk spoke with me. He was extremely gracious. And we had a, a very important conversation about what happened. And he explained to me why he was so upset. Mm -hmm. And we agreed that we would move forward together. And he said, look, part of my faith is that when someone says, I'm sorry, that we take them at their word mm -hmm. and we would like to work with you, which is a huge opportunity. So one of the things that I will be doing uh, in the future is working with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Not my first time, actually. I have actually presented at their conferences before and just kind of talking with the national security community generally. So I, I'm very pleased actually at that, at that particular outcome. I spoke with some journalists who were upset with me. I reached out to them and said, look, I, I'm very sorry. In, in almost all the cases, when I reached out and said, I'm sorry, people did accept it to, to my surprise. I thought they were going to send me, you know, go away. That that's not actually what happened. People were happy to engage, but they were also happy to explain to me why what I did was so offensive to them. And again, it just gets down to this idea of kind of callous indifference, arrogance, things like that. But, you know, like one journalist in particular said to me, you know, I've crossed a border between Canada and the United States for 20 years. And every time I do, I'm pulled over, screened, harassed, my luggage is searched and, and things like this. And like pretty much every time. And, and when I see something like that, I, I see callous indifference. I had people who explained to me that when they saw the cake, they thought of relatives in, you know, they had, they have relatives in places like Pakistan, where there's obviously drone strikes. And they again, it's that callous indifference. You don't, do you understand the fact that this is something that my family lives with every day? Mm. And, and so that was a, a very hard thing to, to kind of confront and realize that, yeah, this is, again, everyday people's lived experiences that you don't make out of sugar and fondant. And finally, I mean, the heart, some of the, the, the hardest conversations were with students. And I mean, I don't want to go into too much details because I don't have their permission to, to basically say, but it was a very similar conversation, but it, it's, it's hard because you hope to be someone that they look up to and that mm -hmm. they feel that they can learn from and that they can have frank and candid conversations with in a classroom, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's about, you know, we don't have, you know, contrary to popular media, we don't have safe spaces on campus. We have hard conversations about very difficult, controversial issues like war, the impact of technology and surveillance and things like this. But it is my responsibility to create an environment that reflects equality, diversity, and inclusiveness. And in my actions, I recognize that I failed in doing so. And what I worried about was that the students themselves felt that they were, that they, that they couldn't do that. And so I had to speak to them, the students in my classroom, speaking to student groups on campus to make sure that, you know, that they knew that I was sorry and that I've been taking steps. So there'll be a couple of other things that hopefully are positive that comes out of this, aside from the work from the National Council of Canadian Muslims. I'm hoping to do some work looking at institutional bias. Not, and again, this isn't to say that I'm looking for racist people in the government. I, I don't think that's the, the right, I mean, obviously if there's racist people in the government, that's a problem, but I'm looking for like, are there systemic reasons why it's hard to shift our gears? 9-11, for example, you have this sudden shift and, and the government moves 
from, you know, you know, other kinds of extremism to focusing pretty much all of its resources on, on Al-Qaeda or people who believe uh, are, are seen as perhaps being sympathetic to Al-Qaeda. And that kind of happens on a dime. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have seen this rise in far-right extremism and we're having challenges adjusting to this. And I, again, I don't necessarily think it's because people don't necessarily see it as a threat. I think increasingly the national, you know, just based on my conversations with the national security community and people in it, they do, but they're having challenges in trying to address that. Why is that? So mm-hmm. I want, and I want to, I want to explore that for the purpose of furthering the, there was a call earlier this year in the wake of the horrific killing of a man outside of Toronto mosque this year, there was a call for um, the government to do more to counter far right extremism and white supremacy. And I really want to help to further that call. I, the other things that I would, I really want to work on are things, what was the bill formerly known as bill C3, which is about oversight of national security policing in the Canada border services agency, as well as the RCMP. I think that we can do, you know, We've put a lot now in terms of transparency, in terms of CSIS and uh, the CST, but we really are lacking accountability, I think, in that federal space. And I think that this is important, particularly for the Muslim community, because they're the ones who are often uh, targeted by these particular agencies. So these are some of the things I want to do. And then finally, I guess I would say that I'm reflecting on my own teaching and how I teach national security in the classroom. So I'm bringing in more on surveillance And I have a week now I call a surveillance and community relations. And this isn't a week that I'm sticking at the end of a course, you know, week 12 when everyone's figuring out the message. This is something I'm trying to have at the beginning. So Mm -hmm. when they're, when people are thinking about these issues, thinking about national security, they're thinking about bias. They're thinking about their own assumptions. They're thinking about community relations because ultimately it's the community that they need to work with. We're going to be safer if there's trust. National security needs to be based on trust and not fear. And this is what I think we're lacking. We're lacking empathy. We're going to be a safer country if we can confront our bias. We're going to be a safer country if our national security agencies can confront the issue of bias. Not because, again, like, I mean, there is the pointing fingers aspect of it, but I mean, it's more about, you know, there was just this report released in uh, New Zealand about the fact that they were so fixated on one kind of form of violent extremism they completely ignored the other and as a result Mm -hmm. we have this horrific attack which leaves so many dead we've already had one terrible incident of violence at a uh, at the quebec mosque and we have countless more lesser incidents of violence including this one that happened earlier this year and we need to be sure that we are confronting this issue of bias in national security again not because it's politically correct or anything like that, but because it's the right thing to do. So these are some of the steps that I'm taking. And I, I've already said finally, like three times, but I would say finally, <laughs> it's, it's just trying to be a little bit more humble, of being course. a better listener and trying to have conversations with people like you or people who want to talk about these issues, being a better advocate. We've done some work on this podcast. Can we further that? And maybe we don't agree on everything, but we can do so in a respectful manner that doesn't try to explain people's grievances back to them in terms of policy. So I suppose that's some of the steps I've taken. And I apologize. That's a bit of a rant. But um, that's great. I think that's great. And again, I'm, I am truly sorry for what happened. So this opportunity to kind of work through some of this with you, with other members of the community who frankly are taking time out of their schedule 
And it's, it's not, you may have noticed it's a little crazy out there. So for people and organizations to take time out of their schedule to speak with me is, is deeply meaningful. And I, I do hope to pay that back through, through some of the work we do on this podcast, but also work I do in my own research and teaching. I, I commend you for that. And, and I really wish you all, all the best in those endeavors. That's definitely a lot to take on. So I pray for your success. Oh, that's so kind of you. It's the, the nice thing is it's work I want to do. You know, it's not, it's not just penance. It's for me, it's actually a kind of hope and it's something to look forward to in 2021. And I hope I can work with you and I hope I can work with others in terms of trying to make Canada safer. Of course. And I I think this may be a good concluding point that a, a lot of the damage control that we do end up doing can't just be PR moves. It can't just be for the sake of helping people forget what happened and not making any real change but rather mistakes are made for the sake of learning and improving ourselves. And when we improve ourselves, that's how we improve societies when each person holds themselves accountable. So I, I think that it's absolutely phenomenal that you're, you're taking the time to do this because I know other individuals would just be like, you know what, there's nothing you can do about it. So I don't need to apologize. So the fact that you did and you are taking steps, you know, you do have people behind you that are supporting you uh, in this process and journey and are really appreciative uh, of what you're doing. The last thing I think maybe I want to mention, and maybe I've said last thing as well a couple of times now, but that this whole empathy thing that you know we've highlighted a couple of times, where whether we're talking about law enforcement agencies, whether we're talking about policymakers, whether we're talking about academics, we can't just be treating everyone as a subject, right? We have to treat them as other human beings. So a fundamental question that we should always be asking is, imagine I'm on the other side of the table how would I want to be treated? And I yeah. think that's such a powerful question to ask, regardless if you're in law enforcement, academic, policymaker, whatever it is, how would you want to be treated in that circumstance and in that situation? And it's not just about, you know, another win, or it's not just about another funding opportunity that you're going to get. This impacts real people in real communities and societies. And you have to envision yourself as a part of that community, or you're not going to be doing your job justly. So that's another uh, point that I'd, I'd like to mention before we conclude. You know, it's a good point to conclude on. We, we can't confuse transparency with empathy. Yeah. And a better understanding is going to make us all better off. I think, you know, it's a new year. It's new resolutions. And, you know, I think we can all commit to trying to do better in a year of hope. I, of at least I hope for 2021. I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. This is a, obviously. No, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It was a difficult conversation, but I wouldn't have wanted to have it with anyone else. So thank you. I appreciate and that. I hopefully we'll have you on the podcast again soon. Sure. I, I'd gladly love to be a part of it. Mm-hmm.